0: Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I am a psychotherapist in Chicago, and on this podcast, I interview other folks in healing type professions about the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others, and sometimes also about burning down the patriarchy, which is what we're really gonna get into today. But before I introduce you to my dear love, Courtney, I wanted to talk about, so I just, I literally just finished an interview with an old friend of mine, Virginia Castillo. You will hear from her in the next couple months. And she was telling me how impactful this podcast was for her and her healing journey. And Virginia, thank you. I know you're listening because you tell me that you keep listening to all the episodes. So A, thank you. B, what I was thinking during that was just how awesome it is to hear when you've made an impact in somebody's life. And I don't know if a lot of people who aren't therapists recognize how much we don't get to hear the impact that we have. And it's not about, you know, ego stuff like, oh, you need to tell me I'm doing a good job. It's just it's just really, really nice to hear when what you are attempting to do in the world is what other people are picking up. So I would love to invite you to tell somebody who's impacted your life just how they've impacted you. And it might be difficult for them to hear because it's always challenging, not always, but often challenging, I think, to accept compliments, especially when it's like you have changed my life or you have, you know, helped me facilitate my own healing or whatever it is. But if there's somebody in your life who has touched you, please tell them, spread the love, let them know. Speaking of that. If you're feeling called to let me know (laughs) how I have impacted you, how this podcast has impacted you, I would be ever so grateful if you'd be willing to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcast. That would be amazing. Also, if you want to connect on Instagram, that's my favorite place to connect at Head Heart Therapy. And lastly, if you would be interested in sharing some money, because this is not cheap, and now I'm not getting paid to podcast anymore. So I need to make some cash. But <laughs> so but seriously, though, you can donate as little as a dollar a month, or you can always like donate a dollar, sign up for one month and then quit and then you just give me a dollar and that's fine, too. And that's on Patreon. And if you search for conversations with the wounded healer, you will find me there. So I greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate any help, any support people are willing to give. Even if it's words. We're honestly like the words are even better than the money. Truthfully, I'm not I'm not just saying that. I I truly mean it because what's a Dala, but somebody to say, Hey, you've impacted me. Like that warms my heart forever. So on to Courtney, who I love and you'll hear how much we love each other and you'll make fun of us for loving each other so much. But my dear friend Courtney Wells received their BS in psychology at John Carroll University, their MA in community counseling at John Carroll University, and their PhD in counseling psychology at Texas Women's University. They completed their pre-doctoral internship at the Dallas Veterans Affairs and their postdoctoral fellowship at the Jesse Brown Veterans Affairs, specializing in post-traumatic stress disorder, chronic pain, and substance use. Courtney was also the creator and director of the trauma program at one of the largest partial hospitalization and outpatient programs in Chicago. Courtney is a prolific reader of mystery novels and tamer of two Pekingese. So please enjoy this heartful, wonderful, amazing conversation with my friend, Dr. Courtney Wells. Courtney. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to sing the whole thing. I forgot to tell you it's a musical and I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) well hello Courtney Wells welcome to conversations (laughs) with the
1: wounded healer off to a great start it is I'm very excited very excited
0: (laughs) I love you so much and it's really funny so we so we've been hanging out a little bit recently and it was your fiance that said it's like you guys have known each other forever and it really does feel that way but it's only been we met for like real started interacting in March look at us now yeah
1: that's wild Mm-hmm. This is where adult friendships can go. Magical. I know, right? Speaking. So I love you. And I you. Yes. Yay. let's get the Let's get the formalities out of the way. I love you. Right. Love. <laughs> we're in love. It's gone. <laughs> so do you want to tell people about you other than the fact that you love me? Sure. I could tell you a little bit about me. It's like, where do you begin? Do you begin with the really important stuff of like, I am the pup parent of two Pekingese, uh, which it's is very actually important. very important. Mm-hmm. My professional journey is one of, it took me too long to get to where I am. But after a lot of schooling and everything, my area of focus is really in trauma. And the things I feel most passionate about is the treatment of trauma and like solid treatment. I feel very strongly that many of the people I work with come with having tried so many different times and with so many different people. And just a lot of people who say they do trauma work that. I think, believe they do trauma work, but maybe not from a lens of actual movement. So I guess all of that soapboxing to just say, really feel passionate about trauma work, feel passionate about therapy, and I have two Pekingese.
0: Yes, and those yeah. are all of the important things in life. And we love kombucha.
1: Oh, we do. We do. We love did you not, you didn't bring yours? No, I forgot it today. I drank all of the kombucha I have in the house. <laughs> It's been one of the, it's been a high kombucha week.
0: <laughs> All right. I'll forgive you. We can still talk about destroying the patriarchy without kombucha.
1: Oh, no. You could talk about that with literally anything water, True. air, always a really good topic of conversation.
0: <laughs> well, before we get to destroying anything, <laughs> why did you become a therapist? Tell us your origin story. <sighs> it's actually a great question.
1: I actually think I came to this from, Okay, if we're really gonna tell the truth. Tell yes. really spill the tea. Okay. Yes. When I was in I have to take
0: off my cardigan for this. <laughs> Ooh, when I was in, in her
1: <laughs> wait, because when I was in grade school, I fell in love for the first time with uh Samantha Waters from The Profiler, which was a show on NBC. And she would you know, if you haven't heard of it, it, that sounds about right. It's a uh, pretty obscure, but I was in love with okay. her. Okay, I'm gonna all Google we need her. With mm-hmm. the profiler, uh, All right, I'm uh-huh. googling while you're talking. Yep, forensic psychologist, which is not what I am, oh. but I just thought she was just wow. It was one of those situations where you would like rewatch episodes because I was so in love. Uh, I didn't realize it was love, but I thought, well, I'm gonna be a psychologist, obviously. Oh, she's hot. Yeah, yeah, I'm into that. Yeah, right. And I work for the FBI. I do not do that. But that is. <laughs> truly like some people are like this like profound story about like well I had this psychological experience I was like no I was insanely attracted to this woman that didn't realize I was attracted to her and then I was like I either need to like I didn't understand it was really I want to be with her but I was like I guess I'll just be her so yeah yeah so that's actually how I got into it and I was unsurprisingly counseled against it because no one thought that was a good enough reason to join a profession (laughs) So I started out school I as a this. communications major with the encouragement to get into hotel management, which fine profession, and that is not what I do. So I ended up along right. the way picking up psychology and kind of falling in love with it. And started out in what I deemed like the barroom brawl of psychology, doing residential. Mm -hmm. treatment as just like someone who worked the floor and ran the shifts and from there went to a master's program and did group therapy. And then lo and behold, went all the way out to Texas of all places for a doctorate. Where
0: every little queer baby should go. Oh No, I'm shaking my head. (laughs)
1: Right. Oh my God. The funniest part was, so this program that I attended, which was amazing, Texas Women's University, amazing program, is a feminist- program feminist multicultural program with an emphasis on lgbtqia plus issues and i thought okay is this a trap is
0: this right a trap?
1: there's luring yeah. people in yeah and then they I'm can't leave. get converted <laughs> yeah yeah so it actually did exist the program was real and then from there i just kind of kept carving out that niche in trauma
0: yeah well, let me know, because we, we've actually never really talked about like the core of like the modalities we're really into in terms of working with trauma. And I mean, obviously, I know you're into mindfulness, all that jazz, but tell all me that what sort of trauma treatment are you into? What does it look like?
1: So I will tell you that my actual favorite, the like core essence of how I practice and, and from where I practice is rooted in ACT acceptance and commitment therapy. And the reason I am, I don't know, I feel like I I breathe ACT at this point in time and find it everywhere now. But the reason I am so inspired by it and so drawn to it is there is no fix, there is no cure. Mm -hmm. And in fact, with ACT, it's it's all about all that other stuff that you've been trying to get out of or trying to get away from, it will still show up. How do you like shift your gaze Mm -hmm. toward the things that really matter to you And regardless of the stuff that shows up, regardless of the anxiety or the fear or whatever, like keep pursuing the stuff that really matters. And I think that at my core, that feels like how I operate even in the world. Not always, you know, (laughs) early 20s, there's a story that runs in my family about how anxious I was. And oh wow, no one could see me, obviously, on this podcast, but I'm not a big person. And I was even smaller at the time. So it's just neurotic and incredibly anxious. Yeah. It is wow because I'm a small person. You are a tiny uh, person. I, yes. I, yes. Uh, I come by it naturally. You should see my mom. So the story of my family though, is I came to Chicago to interview for some different graduate programs. And I stayed with my brother and he was like, Corny, just go out and, you know, hail a cab. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And he's like, just go stand at the street and hail a cab. Uh-huh. Yeah, And I was like, oh yeah, no. Okay. I can do that. And I out there this like tiny frail <laughs> little person with like backpack on and oh like my god. tiny little hand, oh. hand up in the air and apparently he was watching me from the window like oh god okay and came out <laughs> they're and never gonna me, make like, it in the oh no god they're <laughs> okay like came out so i don't think it's how i always lived my life uh, i was actually probably pretty avoidant and scared of a lot of things but actually, then I faced the biggest fear and went and spent some time in Texas. And after that, everything else is like, well, all right, but just that idea of the stuff that really matters to you, having that guide the decision as opposed to whatever the current storm is, the current stress the current fear. so
0: and is that what helped you in your own therapy? Yes, I think that
1: was actually <laughs> it was actually a pivotal point because I think for me, you know I grew up in Ohio. And so it was very Midwest and Mm -hmm. very Midwest upbringing. In fact, someone was saying the other day about how Ohio, the teaching is, whatever you're feeling, you just push it down. Just push it down and smile and make everyone else okay.
0: Yes. That's literally what my husband and I would talk about. That's how, that's how my mom, it was just push it down, push Mm -hmm. it down. Like we'd make up this little song, push it down, push (laughs) it down.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yep. So I feel like, Everything was scary. Everything was pushed down. Everything was Mm. terrifying. And I feel like for me, that shift of starting to move toward the life I wanted as opposed to trying to avoid the consequences I was afraid of was such a shift
0: Mm -hmm. and
1: sounds so simple. And in some respects, it is simple. It's simple, but not easy. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I do think that has been, that's been huge. It also allows me to... I'm more willing to look at the stuff I don't like about myself. And I think Mm -hmm. I try to do that a lot Mm -hmm. because I don't want that stuff to get in the way of Mm -hmm. the life I want to live, but also like what I want my life to mean. Yeah. I think there's a big piece of, that feels really important. Like, what do I want my life to, we're here for such a short amount of time. Mm
0: -hmm. What do I want
1: it to mean and stand for? What's the impact I want to have? And Mm -hmm. how do I let that guide what I do? Because I don't know, there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of shit that comes up. So there's a lot that could take you off course.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Would you be willing to share in this, I mean, solely for my personal interest, plus I think listeners would also find it interesting, your Your journey with sexuality and gender? What that's oh, looked like?
1: mm-hmm. That's been a, <laughs> it's been an interesting journey. Well, so I, I told you already about my seventh grade experience yep, mm-hmm. with the profiler. So from there, everything unravels. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But then weaves a beautiful tapestry of who Courtney is today.
1: How I arrived. The first string, the profiler, everything else. (laughs) Now I'm envisioning the board (laughs) with like the string going everywhere, right? Which is fitting because I'm pretty sure they did that in the profiler. But anyway. Probably, yes. So I think for me, it's so funny. I remember growing up in Ohio, the vision I had for myself was just be your mom. Like that's like go with her. And wow. I think my family was, start out really matriarchal. So my mom hmm. was really the head of a lot of things. My dad was very present and my dad is an amazing man. I'm actually incredibly, as you alluded to, uh, have a hard time with specifically white men in positions of power. And I think I would be even more radical in my beliefs if I did not have the presence of mm-hmm. a few good, open, mm-hmm compassionate, like willing mm-hmm. men in my life. And my dad is absolutely one of them. So it's like all heart. He like <laughs> cries at every single rom-com. Like
0: Aww. rom-coms that are
1: only built to make you cry, make my dad cry. And wow, like, like he like, falls is- into the trap. <laughs> oh my God. The rest of the family is like, this is ridiculous. Oh my my dad's like a weeping mess. So so I had the the benefit of that. But growing mm-hmm. up, it was very much like I wanted to be my mom. And my mom and I's relationship growing up, she was much more closely tied to my brother who was a little bit older because they were very similar. And I am much more like my dad in many respects. And so I, I kept like striving to be closer to her and thinking that the way to get there would just be like her. So I would, you know, dress in certain ways and dye my hair even, but all very feminine. And I got to high school and I remember like, everyone's like, you know, talking about, oral sex and talking about making out going to these parties and all these things and I was like yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> in fact my name everyone got like uh nicknames on the tennis <laughs> team that I was on in high school and I, I'm not even kidding you there was one like somebody's nickname was like BJ so-and-so like blowjob one was like slutty shell. I'm not even making this up. Like this was like what? nicknames. What and, and took these on. were like affectionate nicknames. So it's like, hey, whore. Right. And like funny <laughs> and I don't know. Oh my god. Weird experience. But mine, <laughs> my nickname was cautious Courtney. Wow. Yeah. Because yes. I was like, well, I'm not doing that. That sounds weird. I don't want to. No. Oh my gross. gosh. So there were some definitely some signs. And I remember <laughs> telling, my- I remember telling my mom, I had this boyfriend, air quotes. And I remember telling her, like, I don't want to hold his hand. I don't want to make out with him. I don't Mm. want to do anything with him. I just sometimes want to hang out with him. And I want Mm. people to know that's my boyfriend.
0: Mm. And my mom was
1: like, well, it just comes in time. You'll want to soon. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to want to soon, but okay. Mm. Does she not have any indication? She felt like she was blindsided when I came out in college. And in my family, my older brother is also gay. So he came out first, his... Freshman year of college, and I give my parents a lot of credit because their journey of growth for a small, mm-hmm. you know, Ohio town, my mom has become the beacon of all, all families who are struggling with not living up to the image, the ideal, mm-hmm. air quotes, of what Ohio family is mm-hmm. supposed to be. She's now the person everyone turns to. Wow! But that was a hard path for them. Yeah, my brother came out, and then a couple of years later, I came out. And my middle sister is also on the queer spectrum, and then my next sister in line is holding it all together. because straight at this at this time. Oh my god! Wait, so there are five? Yeah, five. five? Mm -hmm. Jesus! And so, yeah, five and three out of the five.
0: So wow,
1: it was hard for them. Are they religious? We grew up pretty religious. We grew Mm -hmm. up very Catholic went to Mm -hmm. Catholic grade school. I went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, Catholic college. So yeah. And the community they ran in, my grandparents were very religious. It was just very much like, this is the Our Lady of the Elms group and this is the Walsh group and this is the Holy Mm. Family. It's it's very contained. It's very confined. Something. (laughs) Sarah, what's this word?
0: I know, Uh, I know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Help me out here. Right. It was quite a journey for them. So then I... Came out in college and it didn't go super well the first time around. Mm -hmm. I think because of this piece of, I had for so long aspired to be just like my mom. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think there, my family's conceptualization of me was that I was easily influenced. So they saw this as now me like mirroring my brother. Like I look up to him so much that I was like, um, but don't you think if I looked up to him so much, I would be trying to sleep with men because right. he's gay. But right. anyway, whatever. So whatever it's logistics. <laughs> so the first time I came out, it didn't go so well. And mm-hmm. I think it had a pretty big impact on our family for a while. And then then my mom actually had several brain aneurysms. And I was still living in Cleveland at the time. And so I came home and I'm the second oldest of five. And my brother was already out here in Chicago. And so I came home and helped take care of the kids. And he stayed with us for a while. But I stayed with my mom for a really long time. And really since then, our relationship is just fundamentally different. So a beauty and of terrible things sometimes is that something amazing comes out of the other side of it. And I think we yeah. understand and relate to each other in just a way I'm not sure we ever could have if, that, if we didn't have that shared experience. Mm. So... I then left and went to Texas and Texas is really where I started to, in college, I started to understand my gender as different. I moved away from trying to just recreate the people, the models I had seen, Mm -hmm. started to figure out like, who am I? Like who do I want to be as separate from my mom, Mm -hmm. uh, these people in my life. And so that's when I went through a phase of, I only wear pants that don't touch my skin. So everything was very loose and baggy and mm, okay. very masculine in this way. And that was a shift for my family because I'd always worn. Mm-hmm. In that era, like everything was very tight and mm. very low. Funny era of clothing. <laughs> I know the 90s. Right? Let's take it, it like, all back. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry about the 90s. There's also like things were yeah. like really tight and then flared. Anyway, I don't yeah. know if that's our most flattering decade, but no, not at all. <laughs> And then when I went out to Texas, it really just shifted even more. I didn't have those old strings in the same way. I was fully on my own. I had one family member out in Texas, like my uncle on my dad's side, who we had almost no relationship with. So like no one knew me and no one had this backstory of who I was and how I look and what I do and what I'm not good at and on and on. And it was this amazing experience where I could just actually connect with amazing and terrifying. The first six months were real rough, but after that, things got better. But like actually connecting with who I am, and like I said earlier, like who I want to be in this world, and it really became then from there like an, an evolution that that was very quick of just realizing I didn't fit in the binary, and I'd already come out, so I already knew I was attracted to women, but I didn't fully understand the entirety of my identity. And I'm sure that I still don't. Uh, There's always like a surprise. Every time I think I've landed somewhere, I think, oh, this is new. This is new. Uh huh. That's That's so cool.
0: Yeah. That's a really important point to tell people who are just beginning this journey. Like one of my latest interviews was with a a friend of mine who just came out as gay in her early thirties. And she's like, gay and lesbian feel right for me today, but I'm open to that changing and evolving because it isn't static. And we would love to believe that it is.
1: Yeah. And I I actually think it's a funny thing of who I was talking about with this, but even as we take on a new label, it's again, like getting stuck to a story about who we are.
0: Yeah. The more stuck
1: to that story about who we are, the harder it is to actually just be who you are. Yes, Which I think is yes. this, like, it's that evolution piece. It's that piece that I hope I'm not done evolving. Oh God, right. You know, like every version of myself has been, you know, it's like an update. It's really rocky at first mm-hmm. and you lose some apps and some things go horrifically wrong. And then <laughs> things function a little bit better. And you're like, oh, it was hard to understand, but this is better than that last one. I love that analogy.
0: <laughs> and I, I relate so much to the, I always do it like my hand signal. How could I explain this to people? Because you were doing more of a like circular sort of hand signal. don't I feel like it's a box. I'm creating this <laughs> box because that's what it felt like for me. It was this constriction. It was this very narrow way that you were supposed to act. You were supposed to be. And I mean, I truly believed when I was graduating from high school that I was going to marry my high school sweetheart and be a music teacher at my high school where I graduated. That's what I believed was my life path for myself. It's just all conditioning and it's all what you see around you. You know, my family never left the area. I was the first person to move away. My cousin moved all the way down to Cincinnati from (laughs) Fairfield. But I was the first person to like move out away. Mm -hmm. And they just, yeah, people don't do that. It's so constricting. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. It's funny. I had the same vision. I was going to come back and teach environmental science at my high school. Mm -hmm. I'll be back. And actually, the environmental science teacher at the time was like, do you want to make a bet? I bet you won't come back.
0: Mm Oh, because they saw something in you. Oh, thank God. (laughs) Right? Thank God for those people who saw, like, you don't belong here, but not because you suck, because you're, like, beyond this. Yes. And that doesn't mean that people who live in Ohio suck. It's just different, right? Yep.
1: I think the path, particularly that teacher, I think the path she took in life was also different. Well, to be a woman in science. Uh-huh. Yeah. When you
0: said science teacher, I assumed it was a man. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. Like in patriarchy. <laughs> Down
0: with it. Down with Speaking it. Speaking of that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> that's me opening my kombucha. <laughs> Headheart Conversations is a webinar series for psychotherapists designed to invite your inner healer to the forefront of your personal and professional life. At Head Heart Therapy, we approach healing from the inside out. We believe that in order to offer the best care to our clients, we therapists must do our inner work as well. At this point in history, we're called to move beyond the old ways of being and courageously step into a new paradigm. Therapists are poised to support our clients' transformation, but we must also transform ourselves. In this four part series, we will encourage participants to learn about themselves as well as enhance their clinical skills. In this final webinar, it's coming up on Friday, November 19th, and it's called Queering Our Conversations by our wonderful operations director, Benji Martin. This seminar will focus on topics of gender and sexuality. A simplified understanding of the queer spectrum will be discussed to provide a baseline recognition towards holding space for LGBTQIA clients. Building upon the vulnerability asked of participants in the other seminars we will build a space to confront internal homophobia and transphobia, challenge assumptions and biases, and prepare ourselves to hold genuine, caring, and authentic space for queer clients. And as a special thank you to Conversations with a Wounded Healer listeners, you can get $20 off your order by using the code PODCAST when you register. For more information and to register, please visit www.tinyurl.com slash hhconvos. And by the way, therapists, this also qualifies for your cultural competency CEUs. We hope to see you there. Yeah, let's talk about destroying the patriarchy.
1: Bless. It's a. Part of act therapy, where you take on the patriarchy and then you destroy it. That's yeah. <laughs> it's part two of act. Part
0: two, right? We'll write that book. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, like we we had a really, I think, important conversation about the similar ways that we've been impacted by systems and. You said it before, your dad is a lovely, amazing white man. My husband is an amazing, lovely white man. When we say white men, we're not, it's not all, it's, we know that it's not all white men, right? There are nuances. There are all sorts of things. So I just want to make that caveat in the beginning, but you and I have been impacted by white men who run institutions in a very constrictive, right? Just like our upbringing I've been calling it anorexic because that feels a little bit more like emotional to me too, that term with scarcity and mm-hmm. this
1: shit has got to stop. I know the impact is so profound. I think even just so I'm, I'm working to create kind of the, I don't want to call it procedures, but really thinking about the culture that I want to create at this practice In thinking about that, I am, it seems to just bring into such sharp focus. The ways in which that restrictive, patriarchal, hierarchical system really espouses the principles not just of of the grind culture, but also that mm-hmm. white supremacy, also this like right way to do something. And the right mm-hmm. way to do something is generally where somebody else benefits from all mm-hmm. of your work. You get a little bit, but somebody else benefits greatly from all that you do. And there's this like overwhelmed, even in this moment, talking about it. Where's my kombucha? Uh, here, Thank you. take a sip. <laughs> <It's->
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could see, audience. I'm, pu- I'm putting the lip up into the camera. So it really looks like Courtney could take a drink from
1: here. But you can't. Like, yeah, I'll just drink this water. It's incredibly angering. And I, like I mm-hmm. said, I think the impact is so profound. And part of our conversation last time was just how greatly it impacts what you think you can do outside of that system. And it's part of what the system does. And even as I interact with clinicians who've existed in similar systems, not even inherently the same one, but in similar systems, their belief is almost that they don't know enough or they're not good enough yet, or they haven't put in this kind of work yet. So they can't be trusted to do something for themselves or think for themselves or prosper in any way. It's really upsetting on so many levels. Are you overwhelmed right now? I'm over. I just like it's like a file. I like can a, see it. It's like wheel, yeah. wheel, 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 wheel. I feel like I a, know the spinning of it. It's-
0: I know. What's well, making me think too about the academicization? That's not a word, but I just made go it, one. it go with it mm-hmm. of therapy, right? Because I mean, I'll be really interested in your thoughts on this because ACT is an evidence based practice mm-hmm. and I appreciate the need for evidence based practice. And yet at the same time, it can not be healing if a practitioner isn't like really in touch with what healing means. Right. Uh So I just think about the complex of mental health intersecting with insurance, which then controls what we can and can't do for people. Right. You know, we're over here as therapists diagnosing people with adjustment disorders left and right because they just want to be fucking better people, Mm -hmm. right? How dare you come to therapy when there's not an actual problem and you're just trying to like deepen your spiritual self or, you know,
1: heal old trauma,
0: you know, like, fuck
1: that. Yeah. This is a tough one for me. Okay. So I look at act in a different light than I look at something like cognitive processing therapy, which is another evidence-based practice for trauma and cognitive processing therapy is phenomenal for certain people mm-hmm. and it's much more manualized right so this is where you're doing like session by session and here's a worksheet and here's a worksheet and here's a worksheet and right all of that and for certain people it really does it's amazing mm-hmm. and for many many people it doesn't
0: it doesn't mm-hmm. like
1: hold it doesn't like take root it's a surface right. level feeling mm-hmm. when the thing they're trying to adjust is like all this stuff down here that right. maybe they are incredibly logical because it's more of a cognitive mm-hmm. treatment intervention. They actually don't have any issue with the logic of things. It's the visceral right. experience of emotion or the visceral mm-hmm. experience of anything internal. I even think like, I think we can viscerally experience our beliefs where you can't even put language to what it is that your mind is doing, but the the experience of it is there and yeah. for those people, which is most everyone. It just doesn't take hold in the same way. Well,
0: because trauma is not in the left brain. It's not in the logical brain. Duh, if it were there, then yes, of course, we could talk it away and reason it away. Totally.
1: The beauty, I think, of something like ACT and actually why I think people have a harder time fully doing ACT is because it is not, it's not easy. It's not simple. It's Mm -hmm. complicated. It's about staying in it with someone long enough to also see what the feeling is that's there or what the internal experience is that's there. Mm -hmm. It's not always clear. It's really fluid. It's not, you do this, then you say that, then you do this. It's, I don't know if this comes up, maybe you go this way, but maybe they're at this point. So maybe you go this way and maybe it's like, Mm -hmm. there's no decision tree, which I think sometimes Mm -hmm. speaks to this challenge with some of the manualized treatments. And again, yes, like exactly. some of them are phenomenal. Some of the phobia treatments, right? Some of the exposure based stuff, when you fit in that box, it can be phenomenal. But this is our issue, even with research. Mm-hmm. The challenge with research is we say, like, well, you can't be in this and you can't be in this and you can't be in this because you don't fit as nicely into this box. So we're going to make right. this treatment for this box. And it does right. work so well for that box. But most people who experience that aren't in that box. So I think, People take things from ACT. They take like the values work or they'll take a worksheet or whatever. And that's fine. It's helpful. It's, it's, you know, but it isn't the essence of ACT and it isn't the essence Mm. of that piece of, even as the clinician or the provider in that moment, you have to be okay to sit there with the feelings that are overwhelming or uncomfortable or, you know, you have to be able to sit there also long enough to discern Mm -hmm. what's yours in the moment versus Mm -hmm. what's theirs. Right. And
0: that's what we're not necessarily teaching people in school. Like, I don't know about psychology programs, but in social work, you know, I'm teaching a class right now and my students are amazing. If you guys are listening, I love you so much. And I tell them at the end of every class, I'm like, you have no idea how much joy you're bringing me. <laughs> they just really want to learn. They're so passionate. So I mm-hmm. love them. So one of them asked a question, like, how would you do this? And so I was like, do you want to do a role play? And we did a role play where I just focused on the therapist experience. Right. And that's that's something I learned from NARM. It's really just focused on the therapist internal experience and how that's impacting what they're doing with the client. And they like lost their minds. They were like, oh, my God, this is the most effective role play I've ever seen in class. Oh, my God, this is so amazing. Can we do it every week? Oh, my God. And I was just like, wow, they're starving for really like learning that inside out way that I mean, that's just not how we're teaching. And I don't fucking know why. I do know why. Because it's the patriarchy. Yeah, Right. <laughs> <laughs> right because what what are we valuing? It's funny. So I read your bio because I'm going to, you know, record your intro and I was like when I read your bio I'm like that's not Courtney because you have so much more heart and soul and your bio was so like this is where Courtney went to school, I did this, I did that and I wondered for you how much you feel like you have to play that role because that is what's often expected of us that sort of academic way of of showing up to prove that we know what we're talking about, right?
1: Oh, God, yes. This is the the challenge I find. So I identify as queer. I am in the LGBTQIA plus community. Mm
0: -hmm. And my
1: area of academic and professional focus has been trauma. I was asked Mm -hmm. to speak on these two things for an hour to a group of people and nearly had a (laughs) meltdown because I was like, who am I to speak about these things? And it mm-hmm. took my mm-hmm. fiance to say to me, <laughs> what? Like, mm-hmm. so are you joking right that now? I that question. Like, what do you mean? Right. But I think this mm-hmm. is also that piece of existing in those systems or having been trained in certain systems and mm-hmm. this idea that we're told so many times, you don't know enough, you don't know enough, you don't know enough, mm-hmm. or be careful about what you say, be able to back up everything you say, mm-hmm. which is, isn't scary at all. And- Yet, we all have known individuals, I'm not saying it's all white men, but frequently it is, uh, (laughs) who tell me things all the time. And I think, oh, and I look it up and it's false. It's just like, or it's just like the tiniest bit of a really big picture. And I think, what?
0: How are you going around saying this like it's true? Yes. And how
1: do you get to move about so freely and speak so freely without Mm -hmm. like, sometimes that's infuriating for me. So even this Mm -hmm. piece of how, when you step out on your own, losing that, I'm glad I've lost it now, but losing that Mm -hmm. connection to someone who validates who you are, what you say, or if you're connected Mm -hmm. to this company, then clearly you're an expert. But if you stand out on your own, are you? Mm -hmm. And just that, I think there's a lot of fear in that. And clearly I (laughs) had my mini meltdown, but it's, stepping into the light like your own light Mm -hmm. and really owning that and being okay with saying something and also being okay with saying like oh yeah I hadn't thought about that that's a great point why am I expected to always be air quotes right and have thought of everything why is that my responsibility it's about certainty Mm -hmm. right
0: because I've been listening to so many podcasts about like different systems that have power and that are really abusing people. And our culture wants an answer. We want certainty. But the fact is, even though you're an expert in trauma and LGBTQ experiences, you don't know everything, right? So expert. We have to know what that word means. It means that you have a really, you have a shitload of really great information (laughs) and lived experience that informs what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to mean you have a, you know, specified degree in this, but as long as the people who are going around saying that we're experts in certain things have the humility with it too and can be in integrity and say, I'm not certain, I don't have all the answers, but I will give you the expertise that I have and you take that and do what you want with it.
1: Yep. And I I even struggle. It's funny that we say the word expert. Like I, again, coming back to the creating this culture, initially I was like, we're all experts in our own right. And then we come to the table and we share these. And I think, I don't know if I want to even be an expert. Like Mm -hmm. I want to be highly informed or I want to have done a lot of work in this area, whatever we want to say, that's not Mm -hmm. eloquent. But I don't want to be an expert because there's this part of me that feels like once you become an expert, that's a a place that you've arrived at. And therefore there's no longer the evolution. There's no longer the development. Like now you're an expert versus I hope to always have the humility, as you said, to sit in the seat of not knowing and to sit in the seat of being a learner and the person that is taking in information. Because I think this is even... When I think about the evidence-based, not evidence-based arguments, maybe it's not even an argument, but conflict in our field right now, I think some of it is because one is deemed the expert then the other things are less legitimate. They're less good. They're less important or valued. I just think that it's like, oh, I hate how we do this in our culture all the
0: time. Right. It's either or instead of yes and because it is both. We need evidence and we need things that cannot be quantified. That's why we have qualitative research and not just quantitative research.
1: And it's funny because I love the both and. And in fact, my dissertation was both. My dissertation was both the qualitative and the quantitative because I also really struggle with it. I know I already said this, but the narrowness that research can be Mm -hmm.
0: and
1: value the expansiveness of what it can also be. Mm -hmm. Even in the field of research, Mm -hmm. the quantitative is valued differently than the qualitative. Mm -hmm. Like this is everywhere. The medical science is valued more than the psychological science. Like
0: right. But when medical doctors don't know what to do where do they send people to us because they know that it's a fucking emotional thing. What if we just fucking started there and everybody had to get some sort of like psychological checkup? Like we all have to, I mean, we don't have to, right? No one's forcing you, but wouldn't that be amazing if every person every year along with their physical got like some little emotional check in and then somebody could be like, Oh, have you thought about, you know, working with this anxiety or have you thought about looking at your trauma? Like, let's do that. Let's make that. Yeah. Let's do that. I'm on board. We'll,
1: get, yeah. we'll take that on too. Yes. Destroying the right. patriarchy and that. Yeah.
0: yeah. you And you and I aren't busy at all. We're fine. Like, no. We're very boring we're people. <laughs> I just nap all day. That's all that's, yeah. That's it. Oh my, I can't nap. Like I literally <laughs> I can't. can't.
1: Either. <laughs> that doesn't surprise <laughs> me. I'm jealous of people that can nap. I'm so I jealous. Know. I lay down, I close my eyes and then they start like that fluttering response where they're like, nope.
0: Oh must be okay. yeah. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. It is not nighttime. Mm-hmm. So do you consider yourself a healer?
1: You know, it's funny. I Coming on this podcast, I knew you were going to ask me that. Mm-hmm. And it's a difficult one for me. And I don't know if this is where I'm at right now. If you ask me however many months ago or however many months from now, I don't love that word for me. But I think for me, it stirs up this thing that I'm doing for other people mm-hmm. or to yeah. other people and... It's a very Western experience of that word, mm-hmm. um, because there are so many other like semantic and cultural interpretations, uses. There's an expansive quality to that word, and that I do like. Yeah, but I don't see myself as that. And I was thinking about this last night. I was like, "Can you be a co-healer? <laughs> Can you? Yeah, that like a thing? Yeah. I don't know. I love but that. Yeah, this idea that I don't feel like I sit in that seat. I feel like." My hope is more so to sit in the seat of like two things, someone that's going to sit with you as, as the fog clears and you can better identify the stuff in your life that maybe you've moved away from or that you didn't know about that really matters to you. And then just operate as a very soft, like maybe water, not a mirror, but like reflective water
0: that mm. shows you. Wait, you are a cancer, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm starting to get astrology more and get how it shows up. Go on, go on.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, like I have a soft, gentle water that <laughs> just highlights and like reflects back what you're doing and, and then asks like, is what you're doing working? Like, is it moving you towards the stuff that really matters mm-hmm. to you? And if not, how can we? Mm-hmm. But I don't, I think I'm so attuned right now to anything that puts me mm-hmm. in this position of separate or different or Mm -hmm. higher in some way because I am so anti-hierarchical right now.
0: right And like, this is the thing that I struggle with too, because I I have ascribed to, we're all healers. And so when I say I'm a healer, it's not like I'm better than anyone else. It's just that I have tapped into these gifts in this lifetime. Good job, me, whatever. (laughs) But I struggle with, because in what you just said, I heard you, and tell me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. such a therapist thing to say, like pushing away the power that you do have. Cause you and I have also joked about the fact that we could easily become cult leaders because we're so charismatic and people love us. Right. So we have power, right. And we can't pretend that we don't because that's dangerous.
1: That is very true. Then we would be cult leaders.
0: Then we would exactly. Right. (laughs) So how do we hold in both hands this, like Desire for co healing, this desire for non hierarchical, really inclusive, inviting systems, and hold
1: that we are powerful people in this lifetime. You are not wrong. I do find it uncomfortable to stand in the light of owning what I am good at, owning what, once again, like, thanks, system of oppression, but uh, like to actually acknowledge, like, this is something to not give it away to someone else, Mm -hmm. to not be quick to say like, you know, well, only because I have all these other things or that's a very uncomfortable thing for me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In fact, Mm -hmm. it's an annoying thing to other people sometimes when they give like loved ones and close ones, when they comment on something and that my knee jerk reaction is to just give that away. That even if I do something, accomplish something, reach a goal, I'm so quick to say like, yeah, but I had so much help. I had so many people that paved the way. I had so much support as opposed to, yeah, I was up late nights doing these things to get to this moment. Mm -hmm. And I
0: resonate with that so much. And for me, I've honed in on my mom would always tell me that I was special, but then also on the other side, tell me I was being like my dad, being like a narcissist. If I would allow myself to have that healthy pride. So for me, it's that very thin, fine line of how can I let myself shine without hurting other people? And it's so, I've done a lot of work on that in the past couple of years and feel more empowered to be like, I fucking rock. I do some things really fucking well, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to hope that for you too. Thanks. Thanks. Cause I, that's what I see. I mean, when I look at you, I'm like, you're so powerful you're so smart. You're so just great. Like, you bring great things to the world. And I want, like, I'm watching the discomfort on your face right now. And I just, I want you to feel that for yourself, which obviously I can't do it. But <laughs> no, I understand that. I do. Yeah.
1: Oh, I think if we even jump back to not just like how systems impact other systems, I think my family existed in that Midwest, Ohio, mm-hmm. oppressive area embedded in like a catholic faith which is mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know the reality of it is just very oppressive yes and is. yeah everything was about if you own that right. be careful because you'll likely lose it then like right. if i say i'm good at this thing mm-hmm. but it's somehow it's not god's humble, gonna smite you god's gonna smite me i'm gonna lose it and then and then what and then you're gonna stand there and be like guess not anymore mm-hmm. now who are you oh, okay well can i just say i'm good at therapy i know, <laughs>
0: you know? God that I believe in wants me to be proud of my accomplishments. Mm.
1: Mm -hmm. I was just listening to something the other day about like further differentiating religion from God and just this concept of mm -hmm, God being within us and not having to look outside. And so honoring all of it is really honoring, Mm -hmm. air quotes, honoring God. Like it's really just like doing your life and showing up. and
0: Well, and we know that the origins of the church really was about controlling people's relationship with God, which is, okay, we don't have time, but this (laughs) is all true. Round two. two. Also, I need to ask you before we end how you feel about the term wounded healer.
1: I think we're all wounded. If you're living your life, Mm -hmm. air quotes well, Mm -hmm. um, air quotes like fully living, you just don't get out unwounded. You just don't. It's like the cost of loving something deeply, you know, and it's a cost I hope I am always willing to pay. So I actually think Wounded Healers just speaks to the humanity that we all have and does not separate us or does not differentiate us. Rather, it feels very uniting. It feels very much like common humanity. Like this is the piece that we all share.
0: Dig. Well, do you want to share? Your website and your social media that your amazing fiance really does. I really <laughs> loved her. I loved meeting her. I just want well, to hang out with you two all the time.
1: Yes. Then, well, we're can I just move our, in? Yeah, totally, totally. My husband a, can visit every
0: once in a while. Yeah, yeah. He's okay.
1: welcome, cool. whatever. Great. Uh, yeah, I think this actually should happen. I'll send you a legal document yeah. that says you're living with us. Now. Perfect.
0: Okay. Uh, great. Uh, I've been adopted. <laughs>
1: So, I think what am I saying? Oh, okay. So, our website is. <laughs> like, we are I? so dumb. I love it. <laughs> uh, what am I talking about now? People are uh, actually listening to this. <laughs> oh, I, ho- I hope. I hope. And laughing along. Me too. They yes. will. So, absolutely come visit us at the website www.pivotsychchicago.org. And This is a very true statement. My fiance pretty much has been running my social media and she's amazing at it. So thank you, Lee. Thank you. Shout out. We love you, Lee. Um, Just nailing it. And so that's just Pivot Psych Chicago on Instagram and Facebook. Wonderful. Well, again, I love you. And I love you. And now you're moving in and this has been a delightful hour.
0: I know. We could just talk forever. Yeah. Forever and Forever and ever. And then and we'll ever. write a musical. <laughs> we have so much work to do together.
1: Oh my god, we have to change the culture of everyone has mm-hmm. to get an annual mm-hmm. psychological checkup. Yep. write a musical. Yep. move you in. Yep. I'm not busy.
0: Okay. Well, we'll work on that tomorrow. But mm-hmm. thanks for being here.
1: Oh my gosh! Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much to Courtney for being an amazing guest today. If you would love to hear more about Courtney, you can visit our website at www.headhearttherapy.com/podcast. And as always, thanks to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye bye.